It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, uh, my guest is Josh Krauschauer. He is the senior political correspondent for Axios and a Fox News contributor. He's someone who obviously pays a ton of attention to what's going on in, in terms of the election scene across the country, and he's paying very close attention to what's going on within these midterms. We talk about the House, the Senate, the governor's races, and who some of the potential uh, Democrats might be who could pick up the pieces after what might be a midterm that leaves a lot of wreckage for their party. Josh Krauschauer, coming up right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Josh Krauschauer, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Hey, Ben, it's great to be back on the podcast. Uh, So obviously we have to spend our time today talking about the biggest uh, news that is dominating uh, everybody's mind at the moment, which is what's going to happen with Donda Academy shutting down and then reopening immediately again. <laughs> no, I, of course, uh, am happy to talk to you about the upcoming midterms uh, and uh, and everything that we're seeing going on there. I know that you've been following this very closely and I've been reading your work at, at Axios. Uh, and one of the things that I wanted to start off by asking you about is this narrative that seems to have formed Uh, in the last couple of weeks, that what we're seeing here is a bunch of races across the board tightening. From your own perspective, do you think that that's really what's going on? Or have these races always been kind of closer than we necessarily could assess, given the various uh, registered voter polls and other data that we had to work with, given the fundamentals at play regarding the economy and uh, the level of President Biden's popularity. So, Ben, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of the analysts who just average polls, and that's the extent of political analysis. I think the the more reporting you do, the more understanding of history you know, you get a much much more textured understanding of of political elections and how to how to look at, at midterm races and midterm environments. And you know, look, I, I've said this for a while, but the fundamentals we're always going to be rough for the party in power. They're always going to be challenging for, for the Democratic Party, uh, and, and even more so because we've seen where this economy is, how volatile it is at best, and, and the fact that we might be heading into a pretty tough recession in the next year. Uh, that's not good if you're the party in power. You're in charge. You're responsible for the economy and everything that's going on. And all you got to do is look at the even, the, even the best polls for President Biden have his numbers at best in the mid-40s, that that's... Almost every year, if you're president in the first midterm, whose numbers are underwater like that, you're going to get a shellacking in the, in, in the midterm election. That's just history, fundamentals, politics 101. Now, look, I, I think that the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade certainly energized Democrats at a level that they weren't uh, engaged at, 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 
for much of the year earlier in, in, the, in the spring. And that was always going to be a factor in, in, in the whole midterm picture. But you also have to understand that, like, a lot of people don't follow politics like you and I do. They mm-hmm. don't even know who their congressman is in some cases, right? Or they do when they follow. They live them. more balanced lives. Let's just be honest. They're, they're normal. <laughs> yeah, they're normal. They're normal people. And they may do some research or, like, look into things the week or two before they have to vote. And, you, you know, you see this a lot where there are a lot of undecided. There are enough undecideds. Those undecideds are people that are not political junkies. They tend to break against, like, if things are going well, they'll vote for the party in power. If things are not going well, they'll vote against the party in power. And, you know, like clockwork, you're seeing a lot of these undecideds in key races breaking towards the Republicans because just, again, the fundamentals and just the the, the economy is, is not in good shape. And crime, by the way, is a huge, huge issue in a mm-hmm. bunch of states. Um, and that 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 is... You know, right track, wrong track, about 70% of Americans, including a whole lot of Democrats, think that country's headed in the wrong direction. That is not a good sign for anyone trying to win over these undecided voters. So I want to ask what may seem like a, an odd question, just because I I don't really understand the decision process that has gone on on the Democratic side of the ledger. And let me take a step back. I talked to a lot of Republican consultants and I talk to a lot of people who do kind of who are in kind of the middle. They do Democrat or Republican uh, sort of adjacent polling, uh, or they do a lot of corporate consulting, which tends to these days put them more on the Democratic side of the ledger. Um, and talking to those people, you know, a lot of the the things that I heard were basically, you know, mess uh, people sort of surprised that Democrats hadn't come up with better messaging on the economy, on the border, on crime uh, over the past couple of months. They, they were legitimately surprised that there wasn't a, a sort of a assertive campaign uh, on the part of these Democrats to hedge things off. But do you feel like there was uh, no attempt made on that front? Do you feel like it was an, there were attempts made but that they failed? Uh, or is, was this a situation where these issues – which have really been the dominant issues with the exception of the kind of moment immediately after Dobbs uh, pretty consistently over the past several months. So, you know, I, I, I don't think they had a, a good hand to, to play with. I mean, I, I really think that there were limitations given how, how things are in the country right now, especially when it comes to the economy. I mean, if you, if you voted for the, the 1.9 trillion in stimulus, which most, I think almost every Democrat did, that that's on your record that that's mm-hmm. tough to tough to message um it, 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 it's it's challenging for anyone dealing with a, a bad economy and you're the incumbent to, to message that that argument now i think the mistake that was made if they're in, in hindsight is that democrats got so convinced that abortion was going to be almost as big of an issue as the economy and if you looked at the advertising in a bunch of these big races there wasn't a lot of these senators and, and, and House uh, incumbents for the Democrats did not talk about the economy at all. Um, in fact, I, I wrote about in Axios in New Hampshire, which, you know, Maggie Hassan looks like she, she's slightly favored. Um, but she just did her first ad about the Inflation Reduction Act just last week. Um, didn't talk about it in her ads uh, right away. And that may be a mistake. That may be a problem because that inflation is the top issue for voters. And if you're just 
a one-trick pony if you're just saying the same thing about an issue that is a secondary concern for voters. They may be pro-choice. They may be sympathetic to where these Democrats are on that issue. But if you're just talking about abortion to the exclusion of everything else, that is a, a challenge that they faced. Mm-hmm. I also would add that the one area where Democrats could be doing a much better job on is crime. And, um, you know, I think they made some mistakes nominating candidates that are well to the left of where your average voter is on how to deal with the rising crime and how to deal with policing and so on. I mean, Mandela Barnes, Fetterman, those are the two, I think, leading examples where you had other alternatives that were more moderate and the Democrats did not get involved. They didn't engage in the primaries. And now you're dealing with, in the case of Fetterman, you're dealing with the health issues as well. But uh, there are candidates, uh, Oregon's another good example where you have in the governor's race and in a lot of house races, Democrats that said they wanted to defund the police or have supported drug legalization measures that are just really unpopular now. And, um, you know, if they had to do it over again, I would think that they would probably want to want to change their positions mm-hmm. on some of these hot button issues. So let's dr- uh, drill down to a couple of uh, the specific races and things that we'll be paying attention to you and I uh, on election night. Um, you know, first off, uh, on the House side, um, what are some of the key races from your perspective that you'll be paying attention to? Uh, and how early do you think potentially we'll be able to know that the House is going to change hands? Um, I, I think we'll know pretty early where, where this is headed. Uh, if Virginia, my home state of Virginia is going to probably be one of the first states to report results mm-hmm. if history is any guide. And Abigail Spanberger's race in uh, in my neck of the woods in Northern Virginia, Prince William County. Uh, that's a Biden, I believe, plus eight district. And it was a race that a lot of Democrats thought they actually had in the bag or, or, or close to it. And now there's a lot more nervousness about uh, that race. She's running against a Hispanic uh, uh, law enforcement uh, officer and Leslie Vega, who uh, is, you know, she made a comment about abortion. Uh, that's been aired all over all over TV, portraying her as an extremist on the abortion issue. But this is the, just to the point we're talking about. If that abortion issue doesn't really hit as much as Democrats want it to, you'll know early on because that, that'll be a, a signal that uh, if, Span, if Spanberger does not win in that Virginia district. You know, mm-hmm. one of my favorite races, Ben, is the Pennsylvania 8th District. It's, uh, Congress, it's Matt Cartwright, the congressman who's in a Trump, one of the few Democrats in a Trump district. It's Joe Biden's hometown. Scranton is in that district. And it's the place where Donald Trump did his first general election rally for uh, Dr. Dr. Oz and the rest of the uh, Republican ticket. And uh, it's a, it's a swing district and it has a lot of relevance um, in the, in the large, larger political picture. So that's a race. We probably will get some early results in. And if, if, if uh, Cartwright loses, after winning in 2020 in a Trump district, that will also be a pretty powerful sign of where the political mood is in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, the tension obviously is has been in the last several weeks more focused on the Senate side because I think, you know, uh, any Democrat who doesn't actually receive uh, a check from uh, some Democrat entity uh, will tell you that they expect to lose the House. Uh, the The difference on the Senate side has been uh, you know, really for the last several months now, uh, a an overall critique of the candidates that were selected at the behest of former President Trump, but also, you know, obviously at the behest of the voters in these states who, you know, came out and supported a bunch of outsiders. 
Obviously, that includes, you know, Dr. Oz, it includes Herschel Walker, it includes J.D. Vance and Blake Masters. Uh, and those are all people who, you know, have uh, never run, you know, for office or held office uh, before. And obviously, you know, there's also on kind of the, the edge sense of this, uh, you also have similar situations uh, in uh, in uh, bluer states that are less likely to, uh, to, to turn over. But still, you have essentially a slate that includes a far higher representation of outsider candidates who uh, many of them after their primaries struggled to raise money to uh, to be able to have the resources that they would need to carry them over the finish line. When you look at this slate right now, uh, who do you believe uh, stands uh, in the weakest position out of this Republican uh, field? I think, uh, you know, all these different states that people have become pretty familiar with. Uh, and who do you think stands at the strongest position? That's a, a great question. I'll, I'll take it one step back and then I'll go into the, 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 the answer. Uh, one of the, when people ask me, like, how do you define what a wave is? Like my, my first response is a wave sweeps through even candidates that aren't ready for, for political prime time. Mm -hmm. So these candidates, there are a lot of folks that qualify in that, in that, uh, in that Senate, Senate lineup of Republican recruits, Don Balduck. I would put Don Balduck as, as the, um, the the answer to your first question. Like yes. who, who would be who would be the weakest in weak, the weakest position to take advantage of where things are? Um, but but the fact that he's still in the race, Ben, is a sign that this is a pretty sizable wave that seems to be building a couple weeks out. Uh, so Balduck just does, does, didn't raise a whole lot of money. He wasn't backed by the party. McConnell. I, wrote, I broke some news at Axios last week that. The millions and millions of dollars that Republicans had been spending in the super PAC for Don Balduck, they withdrew, even though the polls showed it pretty competitive. So he's getting outspent. He's getting outworked, or maybe he's not getting outworked because he's, he's doing a lot of a lot of campaign events. But he's getting outspent, and his positions and his comments have made him a little bit not ready for prime time. But mm -hmm. look, I can see New Hampshire, and New Hampshire is a very wavy state where if, if people want to vote Republican, they'll, they'll vote straight ticket. Republican, and that could sweep him across the finish line. I don't think it's 50-50, but, you know, there's a chance that could happen. Um, Arizona would be the other state where, uh, you know, look, I think it's pretty clear that someone like Blake Masters is underperforming because if there was, if the Governor Ducey was running in, in, in this type of political environment, he'd probably be up by a few points, right? Mm -hmm. he'd probably, maybe even more. Um, and, and the fact that Arizona is still, you know, it's a toss-up, um, and, and the Cook political report this week moved it from a lean Dem seat to a toss up. But that's a lot of um, most of the reason is it's the national environment and the statewide environment turning much more favorably towards the Republican Party. Um, if Blake Masters doesn't isn't able to take advantage of that, that is a, a signal that his you know, brand of Republican politics isn't quite as sellable in, in, in a swing state like Arizona. But if he does, you know, again, like, again, you don't, you in you know, a wave year, you just see some candidates that may not be the best candidates, but they get swept in along with the, the red tide. Um, and in terms of the sort of the strongest side of the equation, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, uh, there, there was a lot of assumptions that went into this cycle that uh, said, you know, we've got kind of this slate of of Gen X uh, Democrats who have been perhaps frustrated by their experience uh, in Congress, you know, decided to leave, became more national figures in the case of some of them. Um, you see, you know, Beto obviously running for governor. You see Stacey Abrams running for governor. You see Tim Ryan running for Senate. You see Val Demings running for Senate. Um, there are a number of people who are in that kind of category 
generationally um, who are no longer in the house, uh, but seem all to be destined to go down pretty significantly uh, when it comes to uh, the, the outcome in the elections. Is this an indictment of the the overall approach that Democrats have had in terms of, of promoting um, you know, younger potential leaders, uh, because if, if you sweep away the leadership in Washington, uh, thanks to, uh, this, uh, you know, the, the likelihood of, of Republicans taking the house, you could really have a, a situation where AOC becomes the most well-known member of Congress. It's fascinating, Ben, that I, I'm amazed that there's like a disconnect between sort of the image of Stacey Abrams, the image of Beto O'Rourke. And the political realities in running in those swing states or reddish states. Mm-hmm. I mean, Abrams was always someone. She 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 ran in a wave year for Democrats and wasn't able to get across the finish line. Same with Beto, but though I think Beto's performance maybe a, a little better because it was Texas. Mm-hmm. But this was a year where almost every swing state, swing district Democrat won, and Abrams couldn't quite do it. Beto couldn't quite do it, right? And now they're facing political headwind or they're, they're facing problems where, where the party is not well liked and they're doing much worse. And Abrams might lose by double digits, uh, Ben, mm-hmm. to Governor Kemp. And, and, and look, I, 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 they're Democrats that are able to kind of adjust with the political tide. There's someone like a Josh Shapiro who's running, who I think is a legitimate political star to watch, um, mm-hmm. who's running in the governor's race in Pennsylvania, who's actually re- disagreeing with John Fetterman about his position on, on, on criminal justice. Yes. He's actually, he supports school choice. Uh, I mean, it, it's really fascinating to see how he sees the political winds shifting. And then you have someone like Stacey Abrams, who, if anything, has gotten more more liberal since um, the mm-hmm. 20... I mean, she's taken a positions that are well to the left of where she was in 2018, very identity politics oriented. Uh, she was on Morning Joe last week talking about how abortion is an economic issue, which... Again, very, very poli- – whatever you think about the substance, it's political – in a state like Georgia, that is not the message you need to be selling yeah. uh, in the final home stretch of a campaign. You know, Beto is sort of in the same same position where, you know, he, he, he got the base juiced up and he thinks that's the way to win an election. A lot of these Democrats think that you need to turn out the base more and you don't have to appeal to moderate – swing voters and if anything we've learned in the last few years like joe biden showed you know he might have been the only democrat that could have won the 2020 election mm-hmm. in and, and, and he didn't even learn his own lesson right he didn't even learn his own yeah. lesson after winning because he pandered to the progressive wing of the party and it gave him all sorts of political problems so yeah like i if, if, if there's anything if that a republican win in congress will send to the democratic party it would be that hey you can't just juice the base and expect to win you need a build a broad coalition, you need, you need to appeal to, to the moderate voters uh, on both sides. Uh, what new face, you just mentioned Josh Shapiro, uh, and I think you're right about him, uh, is going to emerge in terms of a uh, either a statewide uh, candidate for the governor, for a governorship or for uh, the Senate, uh, who will become a more prominent figure or has the potential to do so on the Democratic side. I've heard some talk about Wes Moore, for instance, uh, in, you know, in, in Maryland, I've heard, you know, a couple of other names, you know, come up. Uh, is there someone on their side who's going to emerge from this? Because, you know, even if they have, you know, a terrible year, they're still going to have a situation where, uh, you know, there's going to be a demand for new leadership um, and, uh, and, and new people to take on new roles within uh, the coalition uh, and push back against Republicans going forward. So I'll give you two, two additional names. 
one, Rafael, if Rafael Warnock wins, if he if he's the one Denver, and I think that's very possible, and it could yeah. go to a runoff. We could have another month of a, and, and he could that might actually play to his benefit. Um, he's going to be someone who is a budding star in the Democratic Party if he isn't already. Now, if he loses, you know, take that off the table. But he's got a chance to win. He's actually mm-hmm. running very competitively still against Herschel Walker. His numbers, if you look at at the favorability rating, quite good for a, a Democrat in, in Georgia. It's interesting. Stacey Abrams is one of the least popular Democrats in Georgia. Raphael Warnock is, is one of the more popular uh, Democrats and he's, you know, he's running a politically smart race and he's he's praising his work with Tommy Tuberville and, uh, you know, other conservative Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. He's not calling them racists. He's actually doing yeah. the work, compromising work. And he, you know, I think he has a fairly liberal uh, voting record, but he's also messaging to moderates in that Senate campaign. So, mm-hmm. look, if he wins and he has a very tough race ahead, but if he wins, I think you'll hear a lot more about Senator Warnock. I'd also mention Jared Polis, the Colorado yeah. governor who I've written about before. Um, you know, I don't know if he has national ambitions, but he's someone who's slated to win his reelection at a time when Democrats are losing many, many swing states and even bluer states than Colorado. And he's done it because he hasn't taken the progressive line on COVID. He's mm-hmm. been a much more libertarian-minded uh, Democrat when it comes to schools, COVID, a lot of the big hot-button issues of the last few years. And he'll, he'll be someone to watch. I, you know, I, I don't know if he'll run for president, but he's someone to watch as a model for where the Democratic Party can go. Hey, look, I think if, if the conversation shifts to should Joe run again, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, but uh, I think that people are underestimating the likelihood uh, that there's a name that emerges that has not been on the lips of sort of the typical D.C. consultant set uh, about alternatives. Uh, but that would obviously be that would take a lot. That's uh, jumping ahead. So uh, on the Republican side, the let's assume for the sake of argument that they do end up taking uh, that that the incumbents win. Uh, let's say they they take, uh, you know, the you know, some of these. Uh, uh, you know, situations where we expect them to perform, the outcomes are, you know, as we expected. Uh, so then you have Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. Taking two out of three of those uh, is a pretty hard thing to do. When do you think we'll actually know if they did it or not, given that Georgia, as you said before, could go to a runoff, Nevada could be very close. Arizona obviously has taken forever to count in, you know, numerous times, most recently in their primary. Um, is this a situation where you think we're going to know the answer to uh, the outcomes in uh, two out of three of those races on election night? Or do you think we're going to have to wait? For the Senate, we'll probably have to wait at least to get an official an official call. We may know where the tea leaves are, where, where mm-hmm. things are headed. Uh, Arizona takes, you know, it's time because they do the mail-in balloting um, and there may be the, the, the issue of elections and administ- election administration has kind of gone to a fever pitch in that state. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's going to take some time, uh, but I do think the overall vibe will be known pretty early. If, if Republicans get an early House call, that's a sign of where the Senate's going to be headed. Um, and look, I you know, I think they're two different. Like, I, I, I think even if you. It would take a really big wave, I think, to see some someone a state like Arizona or New Hampshire flipping, but it doesn't take a huge wave to get to fifty one for the Republicans. Like Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and Nevada would do it, I think, assuming mm-hmm. that there's no other surprises. So 
you know, I, I think we'll get a good sense early enough where things are headed, but I don't think you'll get an official call until mm-hmm. the next day, maybe the day after that. The uh, On the gubernatorial side, um, someone who I think, uh, a race that I believe deserves to have received more attention earlier and is getting it now, now that things have been uh, apparently tightening, though there's, there's you know, mixed evidence on that, uh, is the Michigan gubernatorial race, uh, which I think is, is very interesting for a lot of reasons. One, of course, being that uh, Governor Whitmer became kind of the a national hot button, just as Governor Newsom did uh, in terms of her COVID uh, decisions. She also was someone who received serious consideration as potentially being vice president um, or the, the VP choice for Joe Biden. Uh, if he had gone in a different direction than Kamala, uh, and uh, and she's someone who has become you know pretty controversial in a lot of ways, but is also you know a major figure in a key swing state. Uh, the nominee there on the Republican side, Tudor Dixon, um, I think you know has a reputation as being a little on the edge, but in terms of the field that she was part of, she was actually kind of the least edgy you know, uh, candidate, I think it's fair to say, uh, compared to some of the other folks who are running. Um, and she obviously has the backing, uh, sort of similar to Adam Laxalt in Nevada, getting like everybody on the same page. Um, you know, she has the backing of like establishment Republicans, the DeVos family and Donald Trump, which is, you know, a pretty rare uh, thing and, and perhaps sets you up for success. What do you think about that race? Uh, I don't know if you had the chance to watch their debate. Um, and how do you think uh, that uh, what do you think the potential is there for a flip? So it's interesting. Michigan is one of those states where the polling has been off more than almost any other state in the country. And we're sort of seeing that. And I think Whitmer had like 10, 15 point leads in the polls a couple weeks ago. And now all of a sudden we're talking like margin of error in in, in the latest polling. You know, look, the abortion issue is very big. And I mean, if there's one state where I think abortion may play to like a clear role in the Mm -hmm. Democratic Party success, it might be Michigan because you have a referendum trying to certify certain protections for abortion, which is going to help turn out Democratic voters. You also have a Republican, I'm not talking about Tudor Dixon, but I'm talking about the nominees for AG and Secretary of State who are from the very Trumpian wing of the party and have been sort of poster childs of sort of how the party has kind of gone too extreme. So I think those are going to be some challenges that that Republicans have to overcome. Dixon also got into some trouble because uh, in terms of specifying her position on on abortion and and should be regulated. So, you know, I I think it's going to be close enough. I I, I would give the advantage to Whitmer because of her money and her, her, you know, head start essentially, but Michigan's all Michigan's a swing state, Ben. It's a, it's a state that uh, Trump won. And, and by the way, Obama, you know, who's going to Michigan president, I'm having like some flashbacks to 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember I was stunned you know, I, I thought Clinton was probably going to win in 2016, and I was stunned that she was making a last-minute trip to Detroit the week before the election. I'm like, well, why would you go to Michigan when there's so many other battleground states? Turned out there were some real problems for Democrats in Michigan. Well, guess yeah. who's going to Michigan as one of his few stops on the campaign trail? Barack Obama. <laughs> so that tells me, Ben, that there maybe Whitmer is, is, is favored, but they are not sold that she's she's out of the woods yet. And this, this mm-hmm. is going to be a competitive race. There's uh, uh, just uh, to sort of wrap things up to me, there's a lot of open questions about the way this potential Republican majority behaves when it comes to uh, the Senate. 
on the house side, I think it's going to be a little bit more predictable. You know, you can see the different ways that they're going to do oversight. I would expect them to uh, pursue impeachment of Alexander Mayorkas, uh, because that's going to be something that satisfies the, you know, the conservative wing. Um, you can kind of see what their behavior would be like. But with all these outsiders potentially coming to the Senate, Let's just assume for the sake of argument that, you know, J.D. Vance wins, that Adam Laxalt wins, that, uh, you know, you've got Ted Budd, you've got um, uh, Mark Wayne Mullen, you've got uh, Dr. Oz, and you've got Herschel. Okay, let's let's say that Blake's the, the sort of coin in the air kind of thing where we don't know. That's a slate that includes, it's essentially half outsiders, you know, and, uh, and uh, at least in terms of their mindsets. Uh, and you know, when it, when it comes to the way that they're going to treat their job as a senator, that's going to be something that really, I think, could could determine a lot of different things. We see how much of an impact, you know, just having one or two senators who have uh, agreement on the way that the things ought to be approached can be a thorn in the side of, of Mitch McConnell and the, and the typical Republican Senate leadership. What do you expect uh, should uh, Republicans have the kind of night that the polls at this point, indicate that they might. Yeah, well, if Republicans have a, a close to a clean sweep, you're going to see changes in the makeup of the Republican Senate conference. You, I think you you hit the nail on the head, Ben, and this is not going to be your, your father's uh, Republican Party. It's going to be, um, you know, much more MAGA-oriented. Uh, you know, it's going to be much more populist. I think where you may see some immediate changes, I shouldn't say changes, I, th I think where the impact is going to be felt immediately is on foreign policy. And mm. you have, if, if you do get masters into that Senate caucus with J.D. Vance, who have t taken, you know, feels support, who has a very, very diametrically opposed view, view on, on Ukraine and other national security issues compared to Mitch McConnell and a lot of rank and file Republicans. And I think you'll see an immediate uh, clash um, you know, when it comes to funding for Ukraine, when it comes to the American view of national security, uh, that is Republicans, the, the traditional uh, hawkish, uh, just internationalist view is still going to be overwhelming within the caucus. But yeah. we're going to you just said the, it just takes two or three to to really create a ruckus. And I mean, look, Lindsay, I, you know, what I thought was interesting, uh, Ben, is that Lindsey Graham was one of the big closers. He went down to Scottsdale for, you know, Blake Masters, uh, mm -hmm. which tells me that the politics are still very much in the kind of that mainstream wing of the party. But once these guys get elected, you know, they, they are they are All kind of know where they stand. Yeah. And they're, yeah. they're going to create some problems. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And uh, and it comes at a real time, like I said before, of I, I just feel like this might be remembered as the first election where there was a noticeable generational shift. Um, where we're kind of the, the old guard left. You know, you go from Jim Inhofe to someone like Mark Wayne Mullen, who obviously doesn't get anywhere near the kind of attention nationally as some of these other folks. That's a big shift. You know, you go you go from, from a guy who's been there forever to a guy who basically, you know, is like an ex, you know, MMA fighter, you know, <laughs> and, and, and you're going to see some differences in the approach yeah. to uh, to how they do the job. Um, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join me and to share your insight into this. Thanks, Ben. Had a great time. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. Uh, so I just wanted to share with you a few thoughts uh, in addition to uh, the conversation that I just had with Josh about the midterms. It seems to me that one of the big things that's going to be a test coming out of this is 
setting the expectations for what voters can expect uh, coming out of a Republican Congress in Washington uh, versus the gubernatorial wins that uh, Republicans might experience. On a state level, governors have far more power to influence policy, to direct the course of their state. They make major decisions about education, about, uh, you know, individual uh, issues and policies that are related to everything uh, about our ways of life. And that's just not true of the Congress anymore. They have essentially been rendered defunct by a number of different, uh, you know, steps that have been taken over the past several decades uh, to devolve power away from them and into the bureaucracy. It's a terrible thing. It's empowered the administrative state. Uh, and it's led to a situation where the Congress really is not fulfilling its obligation to the people as it ought to be. However, that's not something that can be changed uh, or turned around on a dime. And so instead, you know, what can we expect to see? Well, we can expect to see oversight. We can expect to see steps from the Senate to block a number of Biden steps, particularly, you know, nominees or any kind of major legislation that would spend a lot of your money. Uh, and we can also see it when it comes to the potential uh, more aggressive stances toward this administration, uh, one of which I think is of the utmost importance, which is impeaching Alexander Mayorkas over his work and lies regarding the border. Certainly, Mayorkas is someone who deserves it. I personally think that Democrats would actually be wise to let him spin uh, and just abandon him uh, to this. But uh, that being set aside, what I think we need to keep in mind is that in the past, when major Republican waves have happened, you know, whether that was, uh, you know, in 1994 or in 2010, uh, two years after that, you saw a situation where Republican voters were largely dissatisfied with what those Congresses had achieved. Uh, even if they had had the kind of success, for instance, the Contract with America uh, Congress uh, did, or even if they had taken significant fiscal steps uh, as the 2010 Tea Party had, you just did not see... Uh, the kind of, of benefit that people would have liked to see when it came to, you know, being able to change policy uh, in significant ways. Uh, this is unfortunate, but it's just the way that the system works now. Uh, and unfortunately, and I think that it's, uh, you know, incumbent upon us to demand that Congress take back a lot of its power from uh, the bureaucracy, from the administrative state in order to actually start representing our interests. That being said, I think that what we can hope for is that this is a Congress that is going to be quite aggressive. They've been treated very badly while being in the minority by Nancy Pelosi and her leadership team on the House side. And I think on the Senate side, you're going to have a series of people, eight to eight uh, or nine people, in fact, show up who all uh, want to make a dramatic difference and impact. Uh, on that chamber in ways that are often, I think, uh, going to be irritating to the existing powers that be and to Mitch McConnell's team, but also that I think they would be wise to enable as opposed to block. Uh, this is a, a, a Senate and a House that wants to be very aggressive in stopping what they believe to be very bad policies from this Biden administration. And the more that they lean into that and choose the right battles, the more that I think they can accomplish significant things. The important thing is to not be distracted by shiny objects, uh, by the appeal of steps that are ultimately not going to result in any kind of benefit uh, for the American people. And of course, all of this is going to be happening in all likelihood in the context of a 2024 campaign that begins the day after this November's election. 
I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.